Allison Azell is a certified sleep specialist at Dwell Pediatric Sleep. She is a wife and a biological, foster, and adoptive mom to four children. In helping her clients with their family needs by providing the guidance and resources needed to understand the root cause of their children's sleep issues, and then developing a personalized plan just for them. Listen in as she shares incredible insight on how to get children not only to sleep, but to sleep well, and especially those children from hard places. Allison, welcome to Fostering Our Faith podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you spoke recently at our virtual support group, Fostering Conversations. That takes place, by the way, the second Monday of every month, and anyone can join using Zoom on our story on Instagram. Tons of interesting topics we have there, but this one I think took the cake. Sleep. This is one of the most asked questions in care. What about sleep? So can you share your story about how you became a sleep specialist? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, It started as um, a necessity, honestly, for me. I have two biological children and two adopted children. And um, our first son that we adopted internationally had terrible sleep. Um, And we spent hours and hours and hours trying to figure out what the issues were, um, talking to pediatricians. And he was about three years old. And like many three-year-old parents, he would not stay in his bed. He had a ton of nightmares, a ton of night terrors. Um, He could not stay to sleep for longer than two or three hour stretches at a time. And really it came from a place of needing somebody to bridge the gap between sleep science and trauma-informed care. And I spent years, years doing all the trauma-informed care research, reading all the books, talking to all the therapists, and also simultaneously meeting with sleep medicine doctors, neurologists, all all those types of things. And the two sides were not speaking to each other. And the things were almost in conflict, to be quite honest with you. And I found myself in a place of saying, somebody needs to figure out how to take a trauma-informed perspective on sleep science and figure out how in the world do we marry these two worlds to get these kiddos some rest. And I looked, one day I looked at my husband and I said, I've been following all these sleep consultants online and none of them know a thing about trauma. They don't know a thing about foster care or adoption. They don't, none of them that I can find seem to speak to that at all. And sleep is such an incredibly huge, valuable topic to families, um, especially sleep deprived ones. And I said, I want to do something about this. I said, I want to figure out a way to make foster and adoptive families not feel excluded from sleep conversations, to not let them feel alone. And he said, do it, become a, become a sleep consultant and do the work, go back to school. Um, and, and you take what you know about trauma parenting and you apply it to all those things and you go help people because no one else is doing it. And that's really where I landed. I love husbands that just say, do it, do it. I mean, like, and that is the biggest encouragement when you're like, I have this idea and they're like, run with it, right? Like it's the, it's the best feeling when you have like the confidence of like the person that's most important to you. 
Oh, 100%. And he said, listen, there's a need. There's a huge need. This is not something that is talked about in pre-service training. This is not something that's, I mean, really, we spent about 10 minutes in my adoptive parent pre-service training of 12 hours. We spent about 10 minutes talking about sleep. And the only suggestion they gave was to co-sleep. That was it. They said, if your child's afraid to sleep in their own bed, put them next to yours. Okay, moving on. And that was the only suggestion they gave. They talked nothing about it. And I said, this is a huge gap. This is a huge gap for adoptive parents. Wow. So can you tell the audience a bit about the myth of sleeping through the night for us? Yeah, absolutely. So sleeping through the night is something that if you get on the internet, you will find bloggers claiming to have the answer for. You will find a lot of very, very high price. <laughs> huge following influencers um, out there claiming that they have the secret to get your kid to sleep through the night, 12 hours by 12 weeks. People pay thousands of dollars for this idea of helping your children, quote unquote, sleep through the night. And what I know now about sleep science that I didn't know before I became a sleep consultant is that that is simply not true. It does not happen. What sleeping through the night actually means, it's a terrible phrase, first of all, and I wish it were banned, <laughs> but what that actually means when somebody says their child, quote, sleeps through the night, it means that when they get to a transition point in their sleep, right, we go through waves of sleep all night long. We fall asleep, we get into a deep sleep, we come into a light sleep, and it's like a wave that falls and crests. When you get to one of those crests, every single human being, you, me, babies, toddlers, older children, every single human being wakes up. Every single one wakes up. What sleeping through the night actually means is that when they wake up, not if, because they will, when they wake up, they are able to return to a deep sleep without calling out, crying, and needing any sort of parental intervention. That's what sleeping through the night actually means. But nobody actually stays asleep for 12 straight hours. It just, it just doesn't happen. That's just not science. And so what that means is when you get to a, a transition point in your sleep, you're able to independently, and typically what parents want to hear is silently, return to sleep without anyone even knowing that you partially stirred. That's what that actually means. I heard an interesting podcast on why you should not set your snooze button. And I'm assuming this is the same concept because you're falling back into a deep sleep and then you're more groggy when you wake up in 10, 15 minutes, whatever you have it set to. So that that's yes. really interesting. That kind of ties that into what I heard. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and because you restart a sleep cycle that you have no intention of finishing. Sleep cycles last about 60 minutes. And you have no intention of finishing that sleep cycle in those 10 minutes. So that's absolutely true. I'm not one to set the snooze button. I'm like, I can't do that. I don't know. It's OCD. I don't know. <laughs> no. I know people that do. And I know that like, it, it always seems to me like my husband does it. And it always seems to me that he's more tired. And that yes, makes, that makes I'm sense. either going to get up or I'm just going to turn it off altogether. Right. <laughs> There's no in between <laughs> for me. Exactly. So you also shared a sleep schedule for each age group. Can you break that down? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the most important pieces of the sleep puzzle, right? Sleep is a puzzle. There are many different criteria that go into making, um, optimizing sleep, right? So there's sleep environment, there's timing, which is a hugely undervalued piece of the puzzle. There's routines, there's independent sleep onset, right? Which is what that sleeping through the night myth is all about is independent sleep onset. And the timing piece of that puzzle is so, I think, undervalued because so many people just assume they know by the clock exactly what time they should, again, air quotes, be getting their kids up and what time they should, air quotes, magically be putting their kids to bed, right? They think 7 p.m. That's what time all kids go to bed. It doesn't matter when they napped. It doesn't matter when they got up. It's seven o'clock. Your kid is supposed to go to bed, right? And I think that piece is so important to understand. Um, and what I realized in, in doing this sleep um, certification and in learning all of this that I have about sleep is the importance of wake windows. And what wake windows refer to is the amount of time between sleep periods. So if you have a child that takes a nap, right, typically it's going to be early afternoon, the period of time between when they wake up and when they go to sleep and then when they wake up from that nap and then bedtime, those windows of awake time are called wake windows. And I think those are so powerful um, to learn and understand because what you're really looking for is kind of that sweet spot. Where is that sweet spot with the timing where my child is going to come in with enough sleep pressure, but without being overtired, where they're going to fall asleep easily and sleep a decent amount of time and wake up pleasant, right? Because we all know overtired babies sleep like junk. If you've ever had a kid that got overtired and everything kind of hit the fan, uh, we've all been in that place where you've reached the point of no return and it's ugly. So I think understanding your children's wake windows, and that is something that um, I share on my Instagram pages. I have tons of sample schedules there um, and charts and cheat sheets and all those types of things um, that, I, that I can share. But understanding those timings and those sweet spots solve so many sleep issues. I have three-year-olds who wake up from a nap at 4 p.m. and their parents don't understand why it takes them three hours to go to sleep when they're trying to put them to bed at seven. It's timing. That timing is off. They cannot biologically, it's inappropriate for them to biologically be asked to go to sleep after just three hours of awake time. So that is a huge piece of the sleep puzzle if you can optimize their schedule and get their timing right. One thing you said that I, I cracked up and I have thought about it since you said it was like the idea of spoiling a child, like holding them too much. And if your grandma is telling you that that's what you're doing, you need to get a new grandma. I was cracking up at that. I think that's like the funniest thing I've heard in a while, to be quite honest. Oh, 100%. Grandma needs to take a hike. <laughs> no, there is no such thing as as spoiling a newborn. Absolutely not. The other part that I was curious about is in the wake window, does it matter about energy exerted? Like, so if it's a rainy day and the child's home and not doing much, you know, or if it's a day that we spent at the pool, does that make any difference? It can, not typically though. It really truly doesn't. I don't see it making a whole lot of difference, at least from a parenting perspective with my own sort of lab rats that I have of my four children. Uh, I don't really see it making a huge difference because biologically, 
we are sort of pre-programmed. Those are circadian rhythms, right? So all kids have circadian rhythms and they are very deeply influenced by the sun. So that's why one of the things that I say, if your kid is, if you're trying to get your kid on a schedule and you're trying to kind of sort through where is their good timing, where is their sweet spot, get a lot of that low angle sunlight first thing in the morning and then at dusk, that is going to reprogram those circadian rhythms within their body. Um, and they're deeply influenced by the sun. And so I think one of the things that's important to remember is that that kind of natural rhythm, that flow to the day, those wake windows, those are all sort of a biological predisposition um, based on their age development, things like that. Now, with that said, there's definitely a range. Um, not every single three-year-old is going to need exactly five hours and 15 minutes uh, to go to sleep after their nap, right? It's definitely a range in there. And so you may have a really huge day at the water park. And so you have a big afternoon at the water park. And so, yeah, they're going to, they're going to be a little bit tired, more tired physically. Um, but from us, from a perspective of their circadian rhythms, um, I don't see it making as, as much of an impact as I personally would expect it to, um, because it's more based on kind of their natural biology than it is on physical exertion itself. What, in your opinion, is the biggest barrier from parents being able to get their kids to not only sleep, but as we know now, to not stay asleep, but stay in their beds? <laughs> that's the key. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a really big one. And that's one that I do a ton of um, client consultations on. I think from, from, from my experience, the biggest issues, one of two things, when you're talking specifically about foster and adopted kiddos, I think one of the biggest protests that they have is the separation from their caregiver. That's typically where it stems from is that they're not necessarily protesting sleep itself, especially if we've worked on timing and we know we've kind of found their sweet spot they are protesting the separation of the caregiver. Now for foster and adopted kids, a lot of times nighttime is a huge trigger. Um, their sleep spaces can be a trigger and that separation from their safe person can, can also be a trigger. So for a lot of these kids in particular that end up in their parents' bed at two o'clock in the morning and parents wanna stop that, we have to get down to the bare, the, the, the root, right? We have to go a couple of layers deep. We have to start by building comfort in the room itself, right? A lot of times we unintentionally only have our kids in their sleep spaces at night. Or first thing in the morning when they're getting dressed, they're gone for the whole day. They don't play in there. They don't spend any time in there. And then they have to come back in there. And it's a place where they're alone. They have nightmares. They get scared. And so they can develop almost a negative association with the sleep space itself. So a lot of times what I have to do with families is we have to go back layers and layers and layers. It's not about, hey, let's jump into some sort of training method. It's no, let's, let's go to the foundation right? Let's build comfort in the sleep space itself and go from there. Let's start with the sleep space. And this can take weeks. Then let's build comfort with the bed, right? Sometimes the bed itself is just getting across the threshold to getting them comfortable on it, right? Sometimes that can be a tricky one. Um, then it's, let's spend some time connecting in the room. Let's make sure this isn't just a place where you have bad dreams, but it's a place where mom and dad play Uno with me, where mom and dad play hide and seek, where we can override some of those negative associations with some positivity and have some healing happening in there, right? And so a lot of times it's more foundational than anything, building comfort over time. And then as we get further and further 
you know, as we get deeper into the process itself, then really saying, okay, let's go to the bedtime routine, right? What can we work on there? How can we build felt safety and emotional connection into that piece? Okay, let's look at our overnight responses. How can we build in a really, you know, safe, um, trauma-aware response that also, right, the other side of the coin also holds boundaries, right? Because we know felt safety comes from a balance of nurture and structure. And a lot of times what I see is, especially in the evenings and especially with toddlers, we're either done. And as parents, we're just done with parenting. And so we just full on go structure, 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 which can, in a lot of cases, lead to some fear and some trepidation from our kids. Or we swing to the other side and we've had structure all day and we're just done with structure. And so we're just like, whatever you want, I don't care. I'll do anything. You want me to hold you all night? Okay, fine. I'll do that too. And we swing so far to that side of nurture that there can be a fear come from that as well, because then the child feels like mom can't handle me. I need to take control of this situation. And so you kind of have to really find that balance of let's meet them where they're at and let's continue to push them down the road to where we want to go by offering that balance of the nurture and the structure so that they feel safe. They feel like they have a gentle, effective leader in the parent, right? Because they need that as much as we don't think, as, as much as toddlers like to seem like they don't want rules, boundary structure, they do. Deep inside, they absolutely crave it. They want to know what to expect. They want that predictability. They want all of those things. And so how do we build those pieces in there? And, you know, it's really going to be kind of a case-by-case -case basis, but a lot of times we just have to strip it all back and say, hey, where's this fear coming from? And a lot of times it's just crossing the threshold of the room that that can just be that 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 trigger for them. So I'm just sitting here listening to it. We've had over 20 kids and- yeah. And I'll tell you the story of our very first one. He was in a tumultuous home mm -hmm. and he was in a foster home. Then he was in the children's home. First night we had him, we lay him in the crib and he closes his eyes and he opens them real fast to make sure we're still there. Hypervigilance. Over yep. and over. And he was a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And it took him so long to break that. He is nine. Mm -hmm. He sleeps awesome now, but that like broke us that was our very first foster child and watching that was like oh my goodness like he already has yeah. trust as yeah. an 18 month old baby like it was like yeah. powerful um, yeah 100% I understand that um what about parents yeah. children with NAS FASD ADHD autism etc any advice for them yeah, absolutely. I would say, first of all, make sure that anytime you have a neurological diagnosis, that everything is going through the neurologist, um, those types of things with, you know, NAS, FASD, those types of things, developmental pediatricians, all those types of things. Um, typically what I see the most with that particular population. Now, with all of this said, I, you know, I do give non-medical sleep advice. So I always got to put that disclaimer out there that I'm not a doctor. I don't give medical sleep advice. Um, but just in terms of some practical things that I have seen really help that um, the, the neurodivergent kiddos um, are things like compression sheets. A lot of times it is just a matter of them truly not being able to calm their physical body enough to sleep. 
Um, and so really when I look at a kid who has a lot of anxiety or a lot of restlessness around sleep, I really want to approach it kind of from three different prongs. We want to talk about the physical body. How do we calm the physical body enough to cross the threshold into sleep? And so things like compression sheets can work really well for that. Um, things like a focal point right? Like a visual focal point in the room, like a fish tank, a lava lamp, um, stars on the ceiling, something that they can physically focus on um, can be really helpful for kiddos with like ADHD who kind of just can't shut it off, right? They just can't turn their brains off. Anxiety, um, that's another really good one for that. Um, how do we physically calm the body, right? Then how do we physically calm the mind, Right. So there's a physical component. There's a mental component to it as well. A lot of kids, I see this with my own biological daughter. She's in the GT program and she just has a brain that does not stop. It just, and she's got some anxiety as well. And she's just all the time, all the time. She cannot turn her brain off. And so a lot of times for her, it is that she needs a tangible actually some sort of fidget, something to do with her hands. She needs to focus that energy on something she can physically touch, do, feel. Um, audio focuses are also really great. So whether that's um, a book, right, on an Alexa that's being read to you. Obviously, we don't want to put them in front of a screen, but some sort of audio focus is really great. White noise machines. Some kids love a certain song right? That that is their kind of trigger. It's almost like the Pavlov's dogs from psychology, right? They hear a specific lullaby and they're like, okay, my brain's going to make the shift. Um, so really we want to approach it from the, those prongs of how do we calm the physical body, right? Um, magnesium is a great option for kiddos who just physically can't calm their, phys calm, calm their uh, body down. Um, and then we, we look at the mind, right? The mental aspect of it. And then thirdly, we look at the emotional side of it, the emotional side, the attachment side. That is all a big piece of the restlessness and all those types of things as well. So then how do we help them to really have that emotional bank full? How do we contribute to connection before bedtime? Um, and so those things can all make make a big difference for neurodivergent kids, especially um, with some of that. Typically, I either see kids that can't fall asleep on the onset. That is their difficulty. But once they cross that threshold, then they're then they're out for the night. Or you see the flip side of that where they fall asleep easily, but they can't stay asleep and they're up every 90 minutes, every two hours, every three hours, all night long needing to be co-regulated and resettled. Um, so you sort of typically get one, one, one or the other. Um, occasionally you get a really bonus child who has both, um, but it's typically going to be one or the other. And so I think if you can really look at it through the lens of which of those three prongs do I really need to focus my energy on, um, physical, mental, or emotional, then you can really tackle it from that perspective. Um, and, you know, a lot of kids, it's going to be obvious which of those three is the troublesome one, right? Which of those three is causing the issue? Sometimes it's multiple, but a lot of times when I, when I approach it that way with parents, they can be like, oh no, it really is just a physical body. Like the minute you can just get him still, he's done, but I just can't get him still. So then we approach it from the physical perspective. And for others, like my daughter, it's all brain. She will lay there. She's completely still. She just can't shut her little mind off, right? And so it's really a matter of approaching it that way and seeing, okay, which link, which one's the weakest link, right? And really focusing our energies in that, um, in that realm. 
Um, in terms of tools, I love compression sheets. I love magnesium. I actually like compression sheets better than weighted blankets. Personally, um, weighted blankets fall off <laughs> a ton. And if you've ever slept underneath a kid's room where it fell to the ground, you hear it and you panic. Uh, but they fell, fall off a lot. They have to get resituated a lot from the kid, which is not fun for the parents. Um, and, and a lot of kiddos with neurodivergence sleep very hot. They're very sweaty sleepers. Um, they thrash a lot. There's a lot of movement a lot of times with them. And so the weighted blanket can sometimes cause, in my experience, more trouble than it's worth. Um, and the compression sheets give this a similar feel without the heat um, and without having to be readjusted. So those are some of my favorite tools. I also love transitional objects and loveys. I think those are really great for those kids. Um, and then, you know, sleep disorders, uh, you know, I can't, I can't talk neurodivergence without, I, I wouldn't be doing them justice without saying, you know, if you truly do see night wakings, uh, you know, more than five, typically in nighttime, uh, you know, if it's not a timing issue and you've got hours and hours and hours and the kid can't calm down to go to sleep, don't, don't be afraid to get a sleep study. Don't be afraid. There is no shame. Um, over 60% of kids from traumatic backgrounds have sleep disorders, over 60%, whether that's insomnia, whether that's apnea, whether that's periodic limb movement disorder, which is actually what my seven-year-old has, um, there is no shame. There's no shame in taking it to a medical doctor and saying, hey, we're at our, you know, we're at a loss, you know, it, it, no amount of behavior modification, which is what I do, no amount of behavior modification is going to override a true medical issue. Um, and if that's the root cause of it, uh, make sure you're, you're, you're checking that box. I mean, worst case scenario, you get a sleep study done and they say all good, and then you can work on more therapeutic ideas. Um, but don't be afraid to address the medical piece because that's, that's a big component for a lot of kids. And I know talking about like the medical piece, right? The go-to mm -hmm. for a lot of parents is the melatonin and the Benadryl. Um, so what are your thoughts on those? You already said that you would rather have magnesium, um, which we have we have used in the past. Um, so what are your thoughts on things like Benadryl and melatonin? Yeah, so I'll give you kind of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Um, specifically with regards to melatonin, the good aspects of melatonin for kiddos with anxiety, hypervigilance, um, you know, or having that kind of just can't turn it off, right? It is wonderful. Um, because it does allow them to much more easily cross that threshold of letting go and sleep, right? Sleep is vulnerable. Um, and so a lot of times for kids that are really hyper aware, hyper vigilant, scared, you're going to leave, um, you know, when nighttime is a really big trigger for them, it can be a godsend for that. And also it's really accessible. Um, with that said, <laughs> with that said, the bad, um, it can be a band-aid. I'm going to be real honest with you. I think one of the most incredible things I heard from a pediatrician friend of mine is that in all of their medical training, they get about 10 minutes worth of sleep. They talk about sleep in their pediatrician training as much as we talked about it in pre-service adoption training, right? It's just not really covered very much. 
there's just not a huge focus on that. There's a focus on disease and, you know, vaccines and diagnosis and examining there. They just don't get a ton of training on sleep. And so a lot of times when a mom comes in and says, Hey, my kid doesn't sleep or they're up a jillion times at night. It's, it's like a knee jerk reaction. Like, well, have you tried melatonin? Right. Melatonin was originally designed for shift workers people with non-24 disorder, which typically are people with a vision impairment. And so they cannot regulate their circadian rhythms. Um, it's a circadian rhythms disorder because they don't have light exposure. And so their brain doesn't understand night and day or people with jet lag. That who it, that's who it was originally designed for. It became, in my opinion, a crutch for parents um, who just said, hey, I just need my kid to go to sleep this knocks them out fast. Let's just do it. In every, almost every other country, I know for sure the European countries, you have to have a prescription from a medical doctor to get melatonin. It is not something you can just walk into a Walgreens and buy, right? Here in the United States, it is sold as a supplement. And so there is literally no regulation. It is not controlled by the FDA whatsoever. A study was done couple of months ago, 80% of gummy melatonins that are marketed for kids do not contain what they say they contain. And so that to me as a parent and a consumer and a sleep professional is terrifying. Some of them had CBD that they didn't say was in there. Um, some of them had dosages that were very far off. They said it was a milligram. It was either half a milligram or five milligrams. What they said was in it was not in it. And so you have to be really careful with that. Um, the other really bad things about synthetic melatonin, right? Supplemental melatonin um, is that it can be really habit forming. And so when the melatonin gummy is doing the work of falling asleep for your child instead of your child, when you start to pull that back, if that decision is made, because long-term studies have really not been done, looking at the long-term impact of you know, supplemental melatonin on kids for long-term. It's never, it was never intended for long-term use. So we don't really have any data on the long-term implications. When you do that, they don't have any skills. <laughs> they don't really know how to do it because the pill has been doing it for them, right? The drugs have been doing it for them. Um, and so that's really tricky. And then in terms of the, the ugly um, that I just, I have to give a fair warning about, it can cause very intense, very vivid, very scary dreams for a lot of kids. Um, and I know for even me specifically, if I take it, if I'm really struggling or, you know, I've changed time zones this week on vacation. So I took it to adjust to the time zones. I had crazy, wild, intense dreams. And so for kids from traumatic backgrounds who are already struggling with some of those things, adding melatonin the, it, to the mix can, can make things go down a path that's difficult. Um, and so that's sort of one of the ugly sides of it. The other kind of ugly side of it is that synthetic melatonin has a really steep initial onset and then a really steep drop off. So there are controlled release melatonins that you can get that would more mimic what your body naturally would create um, on its own because we do naturally create this hormone on our own. And there is a very slow taper effect throughout the night when our body naturally creates this as opposed to this synthetic supplement. But there is a steep onset and a steep off. And so when that wears off, which typically is about four to six hours after you take it, 
your children may think it's morning. And so a lot of times you're like, this is great. They fell asleep in 10 minutes and then it's 2 a.m. and they're ready for the day and wondering why you aren't bringing them breakfast. And you're like, well, that wasn't worth it. Um, and so there can be what's called a split night, right? Where they have a really long extended wake up from 2 to 4 a.m. And that's not real fun for anyone. So that is kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly there. I mean, it is great in certain instances, if it's tolerated well, and every kid is going to tolerate this differently. Of my four, just anecdotally, of my four, I have one who can take it beautifully and it's wonderful and it, it's calming and there's no disruptions throughout the night. I have another who will have hysterical night terrors two hours after they took it. I have another who it has a backfire effect on. If they take it, they can't go to sleep at all. Um, and so it's really, there's so much trial and error involved with it, um, that, that personally, uh, I always am going to recommend behavior management strategies, looking at timing, looking at more therapeutic options for taming anxiety, for building felt safety, for controlling fears. Um, I'm always going to re recommend that side of the coin before a synthetic melatonin supplement. Very well said. And the funny thing, I don't know about where you live, but in New York, they sell them at the dollar store. I believe that entirely. Yes, it is. It is very accessible. You can find it anywhere. Um, it's just a matter of should you. And, you know, again, with that said, I know parents whose lives have been completely changed by it. So there are certainly instances where it's wonderful with no ill, you know, side effects. Um, but I just, I, I worry that that is just a knee jerk reaction as opposed to actually getting to the root of what's causing the sleep issues. I would much rather eke out the root cause of the sleep issues than put a bandaid on it. So this has been very, very informative. It's like this like huge amount of knowledge in like a tiny little time. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, Drink it from a fire hose. Absolutely. Oh, like, so great. I mean, the, our listeners are going to just eat this up. I know it. So are there any last thoughts that you want to share that people may need to know? In terms of, I mean, in terms of sleep, I think uh, specifically speaking to foster and adoptive parents, um, because I know that's kind of the primary audience, specifically speaking to them, I think number one, it's really important for you to know that if your child is struggling with sleep, you are not alone. I, for too many years, thought I was doing something wrong. I thought it was my fault. I thought it, it we didn't connect. I thought he had attachment issues. And, you know, for in my own case, he was this wonderful, you know, caring, smart, wonderful kid during the day. We connected. We, he was easy. He was an easy, and I hate that label, but he just was. That's just, there's no other way to say it. He was such an easygoing, happy kid. And then something in him flipped at nighttime and it almost felt like I had a different child. And I didn't feel like anybody understood. And if you are in those shoes, I want you to know that you are absolutely not alone. It is not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. And this is incredibly common for kids from hard places. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it's incredibly common. Um, like I said before, over 60% of kids from traumatic backgrounds have sleep issues. You are absolutely not alone. I also want you to know that you are not without hope. 
Okay. I know it 2 a.m. when you're sitting there with a kid in the middle of a night terror, you can feel like this is never going to end. This is just going to be it for the rest of my life. And I want you to know that there is hope. It is not going to be that way forever. I can, I mean, from my, from my lips to God's ears, my seven-year-old has slept again, quote unquote, through the night. He has not had any real dramatic wake-ups in about two or three years. And he has slept beautifully once we got a handle on all the different puzzle pieces of his sleep. So I would encourage you, if you are in a season of sleeplessness, to understand that number one, there is hope. Number two, you're not alone. And number three, to really not focus on just one problem, but really take a minute and zoom out and look at the whole puzzle, right? Look at the whole puzzle of sleep. There are so many factors to sleep that are, it's, it is biological, yes, but it is also so much more than that. And for kids from traumatic backgrounds, there's triggers, there's hypervigilance, there's persistent fear. There's all of those things inside of them saying, I'm not safe right now. And a lot of those things are justified. I mean, if you've got a kid from an abandonment background, sleeping in their room alone could be their deepest, darkest fear. Lord, I thank you for Allison. I thank you for her heart as she shares her own humble story of just not having answers when it came to her own children and sleep. Thank you for the research that she has done and the wisdom that you have given her to pass it along to us. I pray that you keep her strong and faithful and to not grow weary herself as she speaks. It is in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.